that passage was just read in the Advent reading is one I've become very familiar with this past year. I've been in my morning prayer using the Church of England daily office, and I'd used it before here and there, but it's the first time I had used it throughout most of, well, throughout the whole year. And I noticed something as I did that, that while there are parts of the daily liturgy that change from day to day and other parts that are you know, maybe consistent through a season, whether it's Advent or Lent or ordinary time, this one element kept recurring day after day and I expected it to change as some season in the Christian calendar changed, but it was, it's been there every single day, every morning as part of the daily prayers and it is this prophecy of Zechariah from Luke chapter one known as the Benedictus. Zechariah was a priest in Israel and him and his wife Elizabeth were uh, aging, he did not yet have a child. Uh, an angel showed up and told Zechariah they were going to have a child, not just any child, but he was going to be very special, a prophet of the Most High God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah questioned the angel, and I can't really blame him, but that didn't go over so well. There were consequences for that, and Zechariah, the angel said, you're not gonna be able to speak until this child is born. Eventually, uh, the child was born. They named him John, and Zechariah's mouth was opened, and filled with the Holy Spirit, he gave this prophecy, and um, I'm gonna read it again and continue it right through to the end. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. It's this last line that we want to get to today, both in this sermon and in life and in this season. We're calling this current series Advent on the Ground. We want to walk into the way of peace. And to, to get there, we need to travel through this prophecy that Zechariah gives it, it as this 
line about walking into peace comes at the very end of this prophecy. It flows from what has come before it. Zechariah gives this, this word, this prophecy. It's, a, as you can hear, a celebration of salvation. And it can really be summarized, boiled down to one sentence. God has shown up in history to save his people. The God of Israel. And that's the focus in in the first place. Zechariah, he's an Israelite priest. And God, to his historic people Israel, in his covenant he had made with with them uh, through Abraham, had made all kinds of prophetic promises. And Zechariah, through what he was seeing, and and this angel had communicated to him, and Elizabeth and Mary, who was bearing uh, Jesus the Son of God, she was pregnant at the time. They were cousins. He knew something was going on there. Zechariah knew that God was at work in a profound and unique way in hope of of, uh, what the prophets had promised to the people of Israel. He says that God has, the God of Israel has visited his people. Now, when God visits, this isn't like what we talk about visit, visit and show up, have a cup of tea or something like that. When Zechariah says God has visited his people, he means he has shown up to save and to bless his people. And the dominant theme through this prophecy is salvation. The word itself is used multiple times and other synonyms. So, God has visited to provide redemption. He has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. So he's raised up a strong and mighty Messiah as promised. Salvation from our enemies. He has rescued us from the hand of our enemies and given knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So this is all about God showing up, God not just being an idea, this religion not just being a a code of ethics, but a personal living God showing up in history. The God who is separate from his creation showing up in the created order to save and to rescue his people. Consisting in, as you hear those themes, being saved from enemies, being set free to serve God without fear, and having sins forgiven. It raises the question here of whether this salvation is essentially political in nature or spiritual in nature. It raises a question of, of, of the expectation in the minds of those like Zechariah and how this was actually fulfilled. Not just this prophecy, but all this prophetic hope that he's gathering up here. And we have to put it in context because Luke is starting a gospel story here in the beginnings of his uh, account of Jesus' life that's going to continue through to 
his sequel through to the end of the book of Acts. And we have to put these prophecies all in light of the whole gospel story. And when we do that, we see there is definitely a difference between expectation and fulfillment. We can't get into Zechariah's head and know exactly what he was thinking, but we can know for certain that many Israelites, they believed the Messiah was going to come and it was going to look a certain way. It was going to mean largely political liberation. Freedom from enemies. And Israel, through their history, had had their share of enemies. And as you know, have continued to have their share of enemies through history. In, in Old Testament times, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. God set them free. They had other uh, local enemies throughout their time in the land of Israel. Eventually, they were taken to captivity to Babylon and were exiled. In many ways, still saw themselves being in exile at the time of Luke's gospel. They were occupied by Rome. They really wanted a real political kingdom where they could be free to worship and serve God without fear. And note that's Zechariah's uh, hope and dream here. He's not saying, so we could crush our enemies and defeat them and destroy them. We want to be free to serve and worship God without fear. Even the disciples of Jesus, this is interesting. You can read it in the beginning of the book of Acts. After Jesus has been crucified and risen, has been explaining to them how he has fulfilled the prophetic hope, even then they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still had this outlook that was for a political kingdom here and now. And Jesus' answer to them is, it's not for you to know the times and places. He doesn't say it'll never happen. In fact, the gospel hope is that one day this will happen, that Jesus the King will return. He will establish the kingdom, establish this peace, establish this freedom everywhere. But it's not right now. And so what, in terms of expectation, what they couldn't see, what we have been able to see, is that there are two advents. There's the first coming of the Son of God, and there is the return of King Jesus. The kingdom is really here now in a spiritual sense and wanting to work that out more and more in a real and material sense, but the kingdom, the final kingdom to come is future. Also, while there's this focus on God showing up to save his people Israel as the story unfolds through Luke, through Acts, through the rest of the New Covenant, we see that that God has shown up to save a global people. This is fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that he would be a father of many nations. And even the understanding of who our enemies are shifts in the new covenant and how to view our enemies. We're to love our enemies, to do good to them, to those who persecute us, to, to pray for them, to bless them. We're to understand that Paul in Ephesians 6 says, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against evil powers of darkness. He wants to say human beings are not your enemy. Now, we become enemies. And in our day and age where it seems like on every issue that exists, we get polarized. There's a key word for our 
time. We take sides. We gather up with those who agree with us, and we identify some enemy on the other side of this issue. We need to hear Paul say over and over, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We need to quit making each other enemies and realize the real powers behind our conflicts, behind our separation. And the New Testament will speak much about our real enemies being sin and death. And then we can understand the freedom that God has brought us from our enemies. Freedom from hatred, freedom from bitterness, the freedom as people who have been forgiven and reconciled to God. Jesus says the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him so that we can be forgiven. We don't have enmity with God anymore. We're free now and free to love all of our neighbors and free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin. One day, free from the presence of sin, freed from the fear of death so that we can live in freedom and serve God and so that we can do what is to define this age of the gospel, live as people who have been reconciled to God and reconciled to others and spread this message of forgiveness that you can be made right with God and flowing out of that can be made right with others and flowing out of that can walk into the way of peace. God has shown up in history to save us, to bring us back to himself, to lead us into peace. And so that brings us to that final part of the prophecy as Zechariah has been talking about how his son John, a prophet of the Most High, will announce this to Israel and he will help them understand that God's salvation consists at heart in the forgiveness of their sins. Then he moves on in the end to talk about the one for whom his son John will prepare the way. And he comes to these words that are, I don't want to rank Bible verses, but they are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. There's a reason why they're in the daily office every single day, not just for their literary beauty, but for the glory of what they actually are talking about. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see what's motivating God to show up in history and to save us and to start something at that time. See, Zechariah saw this being fulfilled in the birth of his son and the birth of the Messiah who was coming. God's showing up not just to, to perform an act of salvation in that time, but one that would begin there and continue and continues into our time. And what motivates God to do this is his merciful compassion. This is, what, this is why we're saved, because God's merciful and God's full of deep love for us, for broken people, for sinful people, for people who weren't seeking him for people who hated God and, and hated others, for people who lived in darkness, contributed to that darkness. God didn't show up to save us 
in spite of us. It wasn't an angry God who showed up on, to just save us, to glorify himself because he loves his son. Some people actually communicate a message that sounds like that's why God saved us. Oh, God so loved the world in all its brokenness and sin. God is motivated by merciful compassion to show up, to bring us back to himself. To send from on high the dawn. What is the dawn from on high? Better question that really answers that is who is the dawn from on high? In, in context, it is the Messiah. It is the Son of God. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He calls himself the bright morning star. The light isn't just some act of God or some force of God. The light is identified with God himself. God the Son is the dawn from on high who visits us, shows up in history to save, to bless, to shine light on our darkness and on those living in the shadow of death. The world we inhabit is a world of darkness. I know, I sound like the Grinch, right? It's Christmas season. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say your prayers because Santa Claus comes tonight. Reality? Live in a world filled with guilt, brokenness from sin, hurt, hurt from others, from trauma and pain, experience fear, anxiety, sorrow, sadness, despair, poverty, violence, broken relationships, the specter of death, disease hanging over us. This is just the world we live in. World of darkness, world of shadow, and yet the dawn from on high has visited us. Jesus has come and he shines on our darkness. Forgiving our sins, reconciling us to God, reconciling us to one another. Bringing healing and wholeness to our, our hurting and sick and broken lives providing for our deepest needs, bringing restoration, bringing this hope and joy and love and peace that we celebrate in this Advent season. The dawn really has shown up and really has shone light on our darkness. And this is the good news. We, we don't deny the darkness. We can't deny it. But the light is here. He has come, dispelling our darkness. This is the good news, and I trust it does sound good, very good, great, but it introduces a tension. There's tension lurking, because there's this paradox between these things we're talking about and saying that are fulfilled, and then the reality we see on the ground. There's a tension between the bells that ring, that fill us with Christmas mirth, 
joy and happiness, and then the reality of life that, that pulls us back down to, to earth. We go through this movement every year, this liturgical movement towards Advent. We put, we put ourselves back in the shoes of people before the Messiah came. That's why we often are we're reading these prophetic texts as we move towards Christmas. We're putting ourselves in the place of expectancy, of hope, of a coming peace and joy and love. And then at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the Savior, that these things have come and are fulfilled among us in Jesus. But then we head into life the next day and we continue to see the brokenness, the darkness. This creates the paradox and the tension. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, that can ring hollow in light of the facts on the ground. There's a famous Christmas hymn. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Apparently they made it into, someone made it into a movie a couple of years ago. I haven't seen it. It was written, uh, it's based on a poem called Christmas Bells, written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, famous American poet. He wrote it in 1963 in the midst of the American Civil War. And it really is all about this tension between these bells ringing that seem to signal all these good things, peace, joy, and love, and yet he was a man who looked around him. And in his own life, he had suffered such loss. His wife, Uh, had died in a tragic fire two years earlier. His son had gone off to fight for the Union forces in the Civil War and had been badly injured. And he looked around and he said, hearing these bells ringing, he said, in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He expresses there the disillusionment, the disenchantment with Christmas that many of us understandably feel. So what do we do about this tension? We live in Advent hope. And Advent hope is twofold. There's a first Advent, there's a second Advent, and we have to take this perspective and realize we live in the time of fulfillment and a time of expectation. The Messiah truly has come. He really has brought light and all these good things. And as surely as he came a first time, he will come a second time. It sounds like crazy talk, I know. <laughs> At least to your neighbors, maybe even to you, to part of me. I always get down from preaching on Sundays. I go, did I really say that? These things we believe are, Jesus is going to come again. He already came. And as surely as he came a first time, he's coming a second time. And we will be like people waking from a dream. See, the Bible realizes this is so like too good to believe. We'll be like people waking from a dream. He's really, and he is coming again. And we live in this in-between time. And so we can look around. You look around and you know that he is coming. You see the effects of his coming. You've experienced it in your own life. Reconciliation with God has brought you this peace in a relationship with God and your sins have been forgiven. You've seen how it's transformed your relationships and the lives of those around you. You've seen people with hard hearts have them totally softened. No um, 
explanation apart from they've encountered Jesus. You've seen enemies who have become friends. Broken relationships reconciled. You've seen people who have experienced various degrees of of, of darkness or different kinds of it experience a greater measure of wholeness and flourishing in life. That, That bigger sense of peace, of shalom. You see as people of faith, as people of God, that the dawn has showed up. And yet you know there's still darkness. So we look forward to to the final peace to come. And this fits the images that we've been given. Dawn breaks on the night and it starts to dispel the darkness. The morning star, it shines right before the dawn comes. And as you've heard at the point when then when night is at its darkest point, and so we come back again and again to that life-giving verse of Paul where he says, the, the night is nearly over and the day is at hand. And one day it will be as Revelation 21 describes, where there will be no sun or moon to give light. God himself and the Lamb will be the light in that world. You never need to shut the gates of the city, that passage says. Now, we don't live in cities that shut gates. You shut gates protect from enemies. You don't need to shut gates when there's no more threat. What we do do is lock our doors. So imagine a world where you don't even have to lock your doors at night. Leave them wide open. There's no threat. There's no fear. This really is the world that is coming when Jesus' delight returns. Ultimately, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, this poet Wadsworth Longfellow was able to say, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, good will to men. So he saying we can be sustained with hope knowing God is here and he is coming back. So what do we do in the meantime? We don't just sit here and wait for this peace to come. We want to live out Advent on the ground. Maybe we cannot totally change the world and end every conflict, but how can we walk into this peace in greater degrees? Notice that we need to be led there. He will guide our feet into this way. And it is a way. It's not not just an idea. It's a whole way of life. There's a whole host of of facets of dimensions to this peace we need to walk into. And as I was saying, it's this idea of shalom is the wholeness and flourishing of life. And it's also, of course, absence of conflict. That is the state of peace. To follow Jesus into the way of peace means that there's a journey to getting there. So peacemaking is part of walking into peace where we see brokenness, helping to bring more of that shalom, more of that wholeness, meeting real human needs. Mental, psychological, emotional, physical needs. It's all part of bringing peace. And in conflicted situations, working to resolve conflict. Might not be there, right? Things still might be tense, but working towards resolution. That is all a way of walking into peace. So the question today for each of us personally, is will you follow Jesus into this way of peace? 
as one who has had your sins forgiven and been reconciled to God. Maybe, and maybe that's your starting point today, just to turn to God and say, I'm sorry for my sins. I want to be reconciled to you and have peace with you and follow Jesus into a life of peace and hope and joy and love. But will you follow Jesus into peace? Make that commitment. And can you identify just one step in your life where you need to, to move into greater peace? Maybe some sin in your own life that you need to confess to God. Maybe there's some tension in that relationship. Or to somebody else. Or maybe some forgiveness to extend to somebody who has wronged you. Maybe some relationship to repair, it's tense. You can't always control that, Paul says. Live at peace with everyone and as far as it depends on you. You can't always control the other side, but is there something you can do? Maybe you don't even know and and your next step is just to pray, God, this relationship isn't right. Can you help me see some way I can move it towards greater peace? Maybe you have anger issues and need to take active steps to learn to manage that. Willpower itself keeps failing you. Hey, the Holy Spirit works through means. You may need to get some help to learn how to not keep derailing relationships. Reach out to others for help. Maybe you can offer to mediate in a conflicted situation. You may be thinking of a next step where you just think of someone you know who's experienced a brokenness of life and there's something you can do to help bring a, a deeper measure of wholeness to them. Bring some shalom to your neighbor, to your community. Whatever that is, whatever that next step is now, I invite you to, as we close here, to lift that up to Jesus in prayer. Ask him to guide your feet in that way. And I want to, as you do that, close with a prayer from the daily office that reflects the Benedictus. Let's pray. Blessed are you, sovereign God of all. To you be praise and glory forever. In your tender compassion, the dawn from on high is breaking upon us to dispel the lingering shadows of night. As we look for your coming among us this day, open our eyes to behold your presence and strengthen our hands to do your will that the world may rejoice and give you praise. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be God forever. Amen.